Hello everyone and welcome back to season six of the Great Women Artists podcast. In this series, I am so excited to be continuing my partnership with the brilliant Alighieri Jewelry, who have been supporting the GWA podcast for the last year and a half. Alighieri creates fragmented talismans of imperfection and vulnerability, which are handcast in London's Hatton Garden with recycled metals. Founded by Rosh Matani to guide her through a dark time, each piece has a story and invites you to unlock your own. I have been eagerly waiting for the launch of the next Alighieri collection, and I'm so excited to say it has arrived. This season, Alighieri will unlock the gates of the inferno one piece at a time. Having always been rooted in Dante's Divine Comedy, this collection will open up the inferno and give you the tools to guide you from the darker circle of hell to a realisation of light and clarity. Hell is often imagined as a land of fire. However, in the final circle of the inferno, ice reigns supreme. The landscape is completely frozen over and the souls are locked in. There is stasis, no ability to move forward or to hope. The Inferno Unlocked Anthology is formed of 100% recycled sterling silver to evoke this icy realm, with threads of signature Alighieri gold weaving its way through to shatter the status quo. Each modern heirloom acts as a code, tool or amulet. Alighieri has transformed its iconic logo, medieval and modern, into gilded, frosted and poetic daggers forming a collection of strength and hope. Be the first to collect the keys to the Inferno by following the tale on the at Alighieri underscore jewellery Instagram and just for our listeners Alighieri is offering a 10% discount across all products with the code TGWA at checkout I hope you enjoy this episode Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me Katie Hessel Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Woman Artist podcast is one of the greatest living sculptors, Philida Barlow. Simultaneously colossal and intimate, precarious and triumphant, stoic and ephemeral, Villa de Barlow's all-engulfing sculptures made from cement, cardboard, fabric to chicken wire don't just force a redressing of sculpture in art history, but they question the limitless potentials of this versatile medium. Taking influence from her surroundings and in turn influencing and challenging ours, they distort all sense of perspective, challenge sculptural conventions and make us breathe, inhabit and experience the medium in ways that no artist has done before. Full of tension and awkwardness, but also the familiarity of the everyday. For over 50 years, Barlow's sculptures have questioned not only the history of the medium, but the role of monuments in modern day society. 
Born in Newcastle and raised in post-war London, Barlow studied at Chelsea School of Art and went on to complete her MA at the Slade, the latter of where she taught at for four decades until 2009. Barlow has exhibited across the globe at the world's most renowned museums, including the Serpentine, taking over the Tate's Duveen Galleries, House to Kunst, and in 2017 represented Britain at the Venice Biennale. But the reason why we are speaking with Barlow today is because she has not only just published an incredible book on her collected lectures, writings and interviews, of which a favourite of mine is her Eva Hesse text aptly titled Lost for Words, but she is currently the subject of a solo presentation at London's Highgate Cemetery and an exhibition at Hauser and Worth, the latter of which features large-scale sculptural interventions consisting of over 100 brightly coloured cement posts more than 20 feet tall, forming circular barricades which in typical Barlow style Block stunts, distorts our normal viewing space and forces us to resituate ourselves in the galleries, resulting in new paths forged and new sight lines experienced. Villa de Barlow, welcome to the Great Women Artists Podcast. How are you doing today? Wow, that was some introduction. <laughs> Thank you very much. I don't know how I'm going to live up to that introduction. <laughs> you absolutely will. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's such an honour to speak with you. So I have been lucky enough to witness your work on numerous occasions at the Tate when you took over the Duveen Galleries, in Venice for the Biennale at the RA, and of course your exhibitions at Hauser and Worth. And every time I witness them, they floor me. They are kind of like nothing I've ever seen before, although they can be monumental, destructive, heavy, weighty, with the power to block our pathway in sight. I feel and find they can also be mesmerically elegant, accentuating the architecture around them, or even allowing us to see through them as if they were to be kind of falling apart before our eyes. So I want to start by asking you, how do you want people to feel in front of your work? I've got several ways of answering that question. But I suppose curiosity and surprise would be two qualities. I mean, on the back of that question, I do think sculpture presents a problem at the moment in this part of the 21st century. I think the need to be entertained in art is quite a big issue because whole aspects of the visual arts are about slowing down our ability to look and experience. And that's not always entirely visual, but the great emphasis on the visual and on being entertained is quite a dominant gene, if you like, at the moment. And not that I'm against it, not at all, but I think for a public to become interested in sculpture, it means a very different process of looking. It requires a very active process of looking where you as the viewer maybe have to work a bit. You know, you have to walk around, you have to take time to see something from several different points of view. Whereas I think art that's dealing with some kind of impact enables the viewer to be quite passive. The art will flood over them. They will be immersed by it, etc. And although on occasions I use those qualities in the work, I think my sort of touchline is the sculptural aspect of the work, that it's three-dimensional, it's occupying a space that you might occupy, it's 
responding to the space that's already there and it's attempting to get the viewer involved in being a protagonist on equal terms mm. with the space they're in and with the object that they're encountering. So it's a big ask of the audience. It's not one where an audience just sort of allows a big installation to suck them in and then they don't really have to do very much to get a feedback from it. And I think sculpture is now probably quite challenging as a genre. I find that very interesting, but also quite challenging as well. What am I giving an audience in terms of the times we're living in when there is so much mm. visual movement everywhere, so much visual stimulus within the arts that isn't necessarily about things being at rest or still or silent, you know, or the qualities of which I love so much about sculpture. <laughs> Yeah, but I think it's so interesting you mentioned that word silence there because in a strange way, when I am confronted with your work, they actually feel so loud, kind of so kind of imposing with these kind of bright colours too, all these sort of different personalities, which is, I think, why I am drawn to them so much. But then I think juxtaposed to that, there is this kind of deafening silence. And in a way, if you shut your eyes, you have no idea that this giant structure is in front of you. Yeah, I mean, I'm yeah. just thinking of like this, you know, going to see cul-de-sac at the Royal Academy. It's like, it's hugging you, you know, it's, it's, it's surrounding you, it's enveloping you. I mean, how do you want to challenge the medium of sculpture? Well, maybe I want to actually use the traditions of sculpture. I'm not afraid of tradition. Mm using things like armatures, using things like cladding and modelling and experimenting with the surface qualities and attempting to bring into the world things that haven't been in the world before that are not so easy to identify or give a name to, even though they might be born out of observations from the world around. They're a kind of phantom copy of those objects so they've become something else in the process but I think the relationship of a warm-blooded creature versus an object that's still and silent which is essentially what I think sculpture is yeah <laughs> to me is the sort of fundamentals and sculpture is in our everyday lives the whole time I mean crossing the road with a 10-ton lorry coming towards you is, in my opinion, a sculptural experience where you as a flesh and blood object is up against a thing that isn't that. And one's big emotional psychological assessments of that thing all happen in a flash. And also that this thing is moving and then will come to a stop, hopefully, <laughs> to mm. let you cross the road. To me, there is a big sculptural presence there because of the way that large lorry is constantly displacing space as it comes towards you. So the track mm. it's left behind, which is now empty, was once filled. And that's what I think we do when we're interacting with sculpture. The space is filled 
But as we walk round it, we're sort of constantly losing an image of it and finding a new image. So maybe a large part of what sculpture is is not necessarily visual. Mm. And I think that that's quite a shocking state of affairs, you know, <laughs> that we're assessing yeah, weight. It's exciting, though. I think it's very exciting. But whether an audience, when they've got a choice of something that's going to be moving and dancing and flickering and have equivalence to what might be exciting about film or performance, instead you're confronted with something that's very still and silent in a way where you are going to become the flickering, moving thing. Yes. I, I think that is quite challenging at the moment, even though, for me, sculpture is inherently the world we live in. You know, we're assessing heights and depths and textures and smells and temperatures and weather. You know, they, yeah. they all are incredibly impacting physical and material things that I think are the qualities of sculpture. But I, I, it's also fascinating. I mean, this is totally kind of opening up my mind in the sense that we also live in this totally image and information proliferated world. Yes, and actually exactly. what I love, this beautiful quote you said, you know, sculpture is like sand going through your fingers. And I love that because it makes you work hard. And actually in this world where we can look at our iPhone and we can get any definition on the top of our head or anything, mm. actually sculpture forces us to become the flickering lights in a way. Yes, exactly. What kind of animals are we that need this sort of stimulus that is visual? And how do we choose what we want to see and when those choices of what to look at are made for you then you're suddenly given the sculptural experience where it's not only a choice of an object that you're being given but you're being given the expectation to treat that object in a certain way in conflict with you and challenging you in the same way that a mountain that is about to be climbed, but how you actually get to know that mountain in its three-dimensionality requires you to, <laughs> you know. Actually climb it. <laughs> yes, yeah, actually climb it, yeah. But what's so extraordinary about that, when you are climbing it, of course, you lose its objecthood in a way because you're on the object rather than actually just looking at it and Sculpture sort of does engage with that, I think, by the fact that as much as you can see it, you're also losing it. So to me, there's all sorts of things about sculpture that challenge the instant aspect of our visual power as animals. You know? mm. <laughs> the, the sculptural experience is, I think, about a very physical engagement from the viewer. Yeah. And also, I love the fact that, I mean, I know that so much of your work is site-specific and so it exists, you know, it's ephemeral, but also it exists, yes, in images in a way. That's the only way mm. that we can ever see it. You know, I, I the yes, only way I could yeah. ever see your 
Tate yeah. Duveen Gallery installation is through an image, or I can actually backtrack in my mind to actually how I felt in it. And I think that's also the power of sculpture is it's not a final image. It's actually the inner feeling. And I think what is incredible about your work is the sense that I remember standing in front of every single work because I had to. I had no other choice. I couldn't just go up to it and take an iPhone snap and go away. You know, I had to actually live it. So whenever I enter those Royal Academy galleries, I always think of your sculpture because that memory is always going to be imprinted on (laughs) it. That's wonderful. (laughs) But whether, I mean, it's interesting because as the person who makes sculpture, these are things that have grown over many years as a kind of attempt to find out what sculptural language is. But I think most viewers, as you say, they inherently will encounter the work as an image. There's nothing I can do about that, even though my sort of ultimate quest is to make the imageless sculpture. But I think it's impossible. I think that what where the imageless qualities occur are possibly in its production when I'm very close up to the work and one's just handling the material or it's in this very unresolved state. I think that is when the image is at its most dissolved in a way. And I think that for me is a very powerful aspect of sculpture. Mm. It's the way things can become something that is born out of what is actually there. This is plaster, this is cement. But the possibility that things like the weight or the precariousness or the inside, these all start to resonate with other associations that are distinct from the thing itself. So it's always about coming back to the thing itself, but it's how it offers these departures. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to come back to this, but I'd love to also go back to your beginnings as well in your childhood. I mean, you were born in Newcastle in 1994, but raised in London. I mean, I'm fascinated. You you talk about this idea of precariousness. And I know that obviously mm. you grew up in post-war Britain. And mm. I, I find that fascinating. I mean, can you talk about, I mean, first of all, how was art present in your childhood, but also how did growing up in the aftermath of the World War II, you know, shape your work in a way? Well, I mean, I was born right at the end of the war, unlike my brother, who has very distinct memories. My brother was born in 1939 and was part of his infant experience, as it was with many thousands of people. Yeah. So there's nothing particularly unique about that. But I think several things. I think remembering aspects of Newcastle's when we went and re visited again and seeing some of the damage up there was very potent and also my father he was a very political man being a member of the communist party in the 1930s with the spanish civil war and everything and his cousin was killed in the spanish civil war so that was quite a potent sort of background of what i grew up with. And then he would take us in the car round on these strange tours of the East End where 
the huge damage had taken place, the bombing of the docks. And yes, I think that did make an impression, as well as going to Paris quite early on in 1951 and back to Germany in about 1953, seeing these incredibly damaged cities across Europe, really quite powerful stuff. And I remember feeling terrified Mm. by the whole notion of war and its destruction and the way there seemed to be a strange aspect of glorifying it and at the same time despairing of it. So a very sort of unsettling seesaw that maybe pervaded the 50s for everyone. My mother absolutely loved the 50s because coloured wallpaper came back in. and (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I remember the house suddenly being transformed with very brightly coloured very brave designs. She had a real flair for... (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) And she made her own clothes, so she was absolutely delighted in all the fabrics getting colour again in them. So that was quite a feature of my childhood, her making our clothes and her own clothes. But how fascinating, you know, the sort of juxtaposition between that, you know... I mean, what I could imagine. I mean, obviously, I have no idea what it was like, but, you know, the tearing down of these buildings and the kind of soot that London has, especially kind of the East End, contrasted Mm. with these kind of modern, bright sort of swathes of fabric as well. Mm. I mean, which your work also kind of encapsulates. You know, you go on one side of the Devine Galleries and it's like, you know, a sort of 60s pop party. And then on the other side, it's scaffolding and it's dark and it's tense and it's anxious. Yes, I mean, I think... Very simply, opposites fascinate me. Mm. You know, when one tries to think of the opposite to anything, it's not as straightforward as it seems. You know, if one says, what's the opposite to a glass of water? It's not just an empty glass of water. Well, it might be a sack of cement or something. Yeah. (laughs) That opposites present quite impossible solutions in some way. And I think that's a very poetic investigation. Yeah. And also this idea of vulnerability versus, I mean, I mentioned the introduction, you know, they are at once kind of weighty and indestructible, but also elegant and vulnerable and precarious. Well, that would be nice. I hope that is the case. (laughs) (laughs) But also I'd love to um, kind of go to your education as well. I mean, between 1960 and 1963, you were studying at Chelsea College of Art. I mean, I'm fascinated to know what this was like. I mean, when did you actually come to adopting sculpture as your medium? Because am I right in thinking you actually enrolled as a painting student here? Yes, yes. I mean, Chelsea was an art school that was on the top floor of the then... Chelsea Polytechnic in Manresa Road, off the King's Road. And in 1960, the King's Road was a bustling, bohemian centre with all sorts of different shops, whether they were artist materials shops or hardware stores and very friendly cafes. There was one called The Picasso (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which was a, a sort of artist <laughs> I didn't know artist that. venue. Yeah, and there was another one called Barbecue, which was <laughs> the one the students all went to. And there were loads of pubs. You know, it had no 
glamour at all. And then in about 1961, I think the leases on so many of the properties down the King's Road came to an end. And that was when this big kind of conversion of the King's Road took place and all these new clothes shops and designers moved in. In my memory, what's almost like overnight and the pubs were stripped and turned into much more trendy, modern places. So there was a huge loss and obviously huge gains commercially. So it went from being very nostalgic place with aspiring drunken writers filling up every pub possible <laughs> to being very, very trendy and pop star central. And witnessing that over the three years I was there was just fantastic. And the whole art school community was so exciting and very sort of stimulated, not just with visual art, but writing and filmmaking. It was a sort of extraordinary combination of incredible easygoingness and incredible rigour as well. And the then principal of the art school, Lawrence Gowing, who was, you know, well-known art historian and educator yeah. at that time, came to Chelsea and set about sort of transforming it, employing then young, successful artists to come and teach there. Patrick Caulfield, John Hoyland, Elizabeth Frink, and oh my god, many yeah yeah was, had that. That's so cool, the stuff of legends. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. But nothing to what was going on at St Martin's. You know, St Martin's was the hot ticket. But yes, I I loved Chelsea. And so you were a painter here at the time. I mean, how did you make that transition from painting to sculpture? I mean, you know, what did sculpture give you? Did it give you that sense of freedom, maybe? Totally. I mean, I very early on, I think, realized there was something about the life room and life drawing that was just not where I wanted to be. That's not because I saw it as a bad thing or anything like that. I don't think my interest was about that kind of focus. And I was beginning to use paint in a very physical way. And one of the sculpture tutors said, you use paint like clay. Why don't you go to the sculpture class on Fridays or whenever it was? And so I did. And it was Robert Clapworthy and Elizabeth Frink running the life class. And they provided these big boards that you put on these turntables. And yes, there was a life figure and she was set up in a reclining pose. And the reason why they chose a reclining pose because they wanted us all to use clay in a very, very free way. And they just wanted us to experience the clay as a material in its own right. So Robert Clatworthy said, okay, take a look at the figure and now turn your back on her. I want you to work from your memory of what you've seen. And I don't want you to touch the clay with your hands hit it with bits of wood or go and get knives and forks from the canteen or whatever it is you can that would get you to cut and move the clay around. And I think it was just such a overwhelming experience. It just took that one 
course to set me thinking there's something about this that isn't just about the visual. It's about the impact of the material and my physical engagement with it. Yeah. But I mean, to think at the time, you know, we had really kind of leading, reigning these British sculptors like Henry Moore and Barbara Hepworth. I mean, they were totally dominating at the time. I mean, what were your thoughts on them? And did you kind of break from that tradition, do you think? Eventually, I grew to be extremely suspicious of the kind of moral way of approving a work of art. It was either good or bad. And I think I wanted something very different from that. And my experience at Chelsea was very good because there were really inspirational teachers there. George Fullard was always saying, only draw when you're tired because you'll then draw what is necessary. (laughs) (laughs) And always encouraging mistakes and encouraging accidents to happen with the work. And I just found it an adventure. And then going to the Slade was like, being plunged into a dark, bottomless pit. (laughs) Oh my goodness, what happened here? Why? (laughs) A sculpture department was in the basement. Oh no! And the teaching was very serious, but there was an extraordinary atmosphere of good, bad, right, wrong. I just found that oppressive, and I started to look at erotic Indian sculpture, the cave sculptures, Amazing. And to look at Polish textile art. Wow. And really trying to break out of a kind of British-centred art history to look further Mm. afield and to look at decoration as well. But to begin with, at Chelsea, I looked at Henry Moore and Barbara Hepworth a lot and then gradually started to break rank with the way British sculpture was going. Yeah. And then when did you sort of start working with these kind of semi-abandoned objects? I mean, I love looking at the early work of yours. I mean, it only very much exists through photographs, these fantastic works of, you know, things on top of ironing boards and on top of sofas and everything. It's giant. I mean, I don't know what materials they even are, but like, when did you kind of come to that? Like disrupting sculpture from within? I mean, we think of Moore and Hepworth as these titans with their bronze and exotic woods and everything. And then you're coming in and kind of giving these ordinary objects, this incredible elevation, I guess. Well, that happened much later. I mean, there was the whole of the 70s and the 80s to get through before those (laughs) objects four (laughs) happened, you know. (laughs) So it was a long journey to get to that. And they were happening at a time when I didn't have shows on. It was quite, quite a lonely, tricky time that I think a lot of artists go through sort of being in the wrong place at the right time, if you know what I mean, I think, (laughs) in the beginning of the 90s, and starting to think very hard about the destination for art objects and questioning that a bit, or thinking about, well, what about the object that has a destination but is in a way completely inappropriate? Like, where do people put art objects in their sitting rooms and what happens if the art object completely overwhelms that space or ends up in an armchair or sits on top of a television. So it just (laughs) began this quite facetious 
game with domestic objects, for me, very liberating and being able to create my own destinations for art rather than having it officially approved by it being bought through a gallery or something. And it was a great time. You know, I ended up throwing some works into the Thames. What? (laughs) Late at night, probably not environmentally particularly (laughs) good thing oh my gosh no (laughs) but I mean you talk about making these works in a domestic space I mean it's also interesting I've also heard you talk about how it's also quite a highly emotional space and a charged space as well and a kind Mm. of a bit like a anti-establishment sort of Mm. destination in a way yes I think I mean the okay one of the things I credit art school with was giving me great independence as a maker, even though I wasn't good at a lot of the sort of technical side of things. It did give me the independence to know that this was how something should be made, you know, whether it was casting or building a structure or something. I knew how to go about it, even if I wasn't any good of it. And that sort of independence meant that I think very early on, the studio was the thing that defined me as an artist. It gave me that confidence, but I had no kind of professional ambition away. I was very lucky to get teaching job. So I had an income because art schools were beginning to employ young artists and also beginning to employ more women. So I was very much in the right place at the right time regarding that. But in terms of my work, it wasn't so easy. I didn't really get exhibitions for a long time. You know, it was a a real commitment to the studio. And I had no, like I think so many artists find, to make that initial skirmish into showing. How do you go about it? You know, what's the magic formula that enables you to get to know the right people and all that kind of thing and um yeah that that took a long time with me so during the 70s and into the 80s I was very much questioning what happens to art which is in a way why I began destroying a lot of art because I just hadn't got the space to store it on one hand but I also was wondering why Art has to be for in perpetuity yeah. or longevity. You know, what happens if yeah. it's not? Is it such a terrible thing that, you know, it's in the moment and that's what it is? So those things made me question how art becomes institutionalized, that that then requires certain aspects of authority to say this art is good and this art is bad. And I think that's what I was really trying to look at why is bad art bad you know who says so (laughs) (laughs) yeah totally but then I find it fascinating that you know in 2014 you took over the Devine Galleries perhaps the most institutionalized place perhaps in the world at the Tate Mm. Britain with this just I mean, I've, I, I remember, what is it, nearly 10 years ago now, but I mean, it just, it stayed mm. in my mind. I mean, mm. it's also, also never really made me look 
so much. And I, now I can't get rid of the sort of classical <laughs> and the sort of warped history of the Tate. Every single time I walk in it, I'm just like, okay, what did Doc in 2014 <laughs> make me think of? And I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea that you took over this such institutionalized space. I mean, can you talk a bit about this work and the idea of that being in the institutions, what it meant to sort of take down Tate and the idea of monuments as well? Yes, that's interesting. I like the way when you're outside the Tate, it doesn't actually tell you just how big that space is inside it. Yeah. So there's quite a sort of magician's trick there where (laughs) the building seems tiny and you go in there and it seems to magically expand in a way that I think is very surprising. It also is at right angles to the Thames. So it has this strange relationship in terms of the horizontality of the Thames and the horizontality of the Devine Galleries, almost as though the Devine Gallery is almost like a sun It's quite river-like. Yes, yeah, exactly. And, of course, there's all sorts of histories attached to that building of it being connected to the slave trade. But I think in some ways I was very influenced by Martin Creed's Devine exhibition that was the runners. He had just different runners running the full length of the gallery. Wow. And yeah, and it really was such a brilliant innovation. And I wasn't influenced by wanting to do something like that. But <laughs> to me, it struck me that that Devine was a kind of passageway, a corridor that people walked through. And I began to think about, well, you know, how long will anyone actually look at these works if they're going from A to B? What if I make sculptures that are actually about being walked past than being stood in front of and gazed at for many minutes? What about making work that is intentionally and purposefully about being glimpsed or just caught? Maybe people did stop. and So I know that idea isn't foolproof in any way. <laughs> I think they did also visit the Tate to see your work. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I sort of, by sitting on the steps of the Tate and looking at the traffic on the river, it just made me think of that way of becoming in a time element with work. So these works were something you walk past that you would, notice almost subconsciously. (laughs) I became intrigued by that possibility that was perhaps challenging something about the demand of art to be something that you've got to give time to in a certain way. I mean, that's a wonderful aspect of it. But maybe not all art is about that long look. Maybe there is art that's a bit like being on a train journey where you see things and they absolutely capture you, but you've only had a split second to absorb it. And that becomes equally as intense as the thing that you've given a lot of time to looking at. (laughs) And I was quite fascinated by that notion of the fleeting impact of a work on someone and built in a way as though it's a structure for another structure. All these kind of yeah. ideas of things in passing 
rather than a sense of being intimidated by the extraordinary architecture of that space to take it on in some way, I think, but more to make something that was separate to it. Yeah. But I also find it fascinating how you worked in the sort of British Pavilion and you worked in the, the Royal Academy and the Tate. I mean, these such established institutions. Yes. But also coming back to this idea of this precariarity and this vulnerableness and this ephemerality in the sense that actually what I love about your work is the fact that it actually, it's a bit like Hepworth in the sense that what I love about Hepworth is actually it makes you look around rather than yeah, yeah, what it's in. Yeah. I mean, even though they're so big, mm. it sounds so weird, but some kind of, it can feel invisible almost. Yeah, and actually no, it makes you look elsewhere. Mm. And I think also it points to this idea of the ephemerality of not just life, but also the precarious nature of these institutions and the kind of grounds in which they were built and actually how kind of long lasting can this be? And and the idea of monuments and how monuments kind mm. of greenwash or, or anything going on the whole time. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's really well put because I think sculpture does displace space. And I think the sculpture that mm is more, well, it's more literal. Yeah. You can sort of see what it is and it it encloses its narrative within it, like, say, Rodin's Kiss or a Benini sculpture where there's something very much a narrative, a story being told that's yeah. within the work itself. But I suppose there's also sculpture that does try to raise questions about what is the space around it and how much of that space does the sculptural object itself own and therefore how much space do you own as the viewer. So you've got these two kind of spatial collisions. Yeah. I think that was also very much part of the thinking of the Devine, that the space itself offers this passageway and therefore movement is part of the experience, walking through that 80 metres of gallery space. It's almost as though we become like actors in a play or something. It's like this sort of theatrical set. You know when you go and see theatre sets and everything looks perfect from the front and then behind you can kind of see all the kind of nuts and bolts and everything. And actually we become participants of the sculpture. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I always say, that there are three protagonists, you know, the sculpture, the space and the viewer. Yeah. I never know quite which one is going to get the upper hand. Yeah. <laughs> that's always the <laughs> the excitement of it. Well, it's the, it's the chance encounter. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And when, when they're being built in the studio, you know, it's all about being close up and things not being resolved or be taking time to be resolved or always in sections so I might not even see them all together until they get to the venue and then of course when they're in the venue the performance begins and it's yeah yeah <laughs> terrifying <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But I mean, you're, you've got you've got a show on at the moment at Hauser & Worth. I mean, can you tell us about this as well? Because obviously this is working slightly smaller scale. But again, I mean, I know that space so well. And, you know, having seen countless exhibitions there, you kind of totally disrupt it as well. You're kind of blocking us from getting anywhere in a way. Yes, it's a question, you know, where is the object? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's almost like one of those children's books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, is the object the space that's being enclosed or 
like the hole in the sculpture, you know, the Hepworth Moore kind of trope of the hole in the sculpture. What does it actually do when it punctures the object? So you really are taking the view behind, you're pulling it through that hole into the front. And it's both sensual or even erotic, but it's also provocative about trying to catch what the view behind where the hole also is, what that view behind is. So it's, it is provocative. And to me, the empty space that those fence barricade works do is about being able to imagine the encounter with that space as you patrol the outside and what are the things that goes through viewers heads you know when they're looking at sculpture the need to touch the need to strain to get into something that isn't quite accessible. All those things are, I think, about wanting to argue with what is being given as a sort of static thing and find other layers about it that are relevant to everyday life in an emotional sense, you know, being forbidden, not knowing, wondering what is hot or cold or rough or smooth, you know, all those qualities that test our knowledge of the world around in a way. And I think the silent still object does it in a very particular way of arousing that curiosity, but at the same time, denying there to be a resolution to that curiosity. So the imagination has to work hard, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, Philida, thank you so much for this just wonderful and enlightening conversation. I urge everyone to go and see your work up at Highgate Cemetery as well as Hauser and Worth. But as this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests if there was a female artist, past or present, who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to them? I suppose as, you know, the big the big ones, the Bourgeois, the Hessers, Hepworth, Nevelson all the 20th century <laughs> women would be fantastic. But in the end, I think it would have to be Gentilescu, you know. <gasps> yes. Because I think she's held up as such a sort of icon and the kind of life she went through, I think, says it all. I think it's unbeatable, actually, how she came through that yeah. and how she found the inner strength with so little reward and so much punishment it would be wonderful to be so kind of humbled in her presence and yeah <laughs> be so privileged to meet her and also what what would be her response to the big issues of the 21st century the issues of gender social justice race religion as being such a dominant subject in the art how would she respond to that yeah absolutely Fuller Barlow, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today thank you thank you for your wonderful questions <laughs> thank you all so much for listening to the 68th episode of the great woman artist podcast with the brilliant Phyllida Barlow 
It was so fascinating and wonderful to hear about Phyllida's incredible life and work. And I urge you all to visit her exhibition on right now at House and Worth London and at Highgate Cemetery. As always, I have included all the links in the show notes. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nada Smilenic and research assistant was Viva Ruji. And if you have been enjoying this episode so far, I will be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. 